Last week, a new and very important study from UC Davis came out, which explains a lot. It used brain tissue of people with autism to study the nature of changes in the amygdala over time in a way that only brain tissue can by looking at cells. Looking closely as possible at the actual brain tissue of people with autism has revealed changes that can only be seen on a microscopic level. One of the labs that's taken the lead in studying the brain on this level is the Cindy Schumann lab at UC Davis, which also happens to be a node of the autism brain net. This lab has spent literally decades studying the amygdala using imaging techniques in toddlers and adolescents, and also using multiple technologies to understand why and where there are differences in different areas of the amygdala. Now, why the amygdala? This is a region that lies towards the side of your brain, more towards the back. It's about the shape of an almond, and you have two of them, one on each side. It's not all the way towards the back, but maybe a little behind the ear, and not on the surface, but deeper down. So from that description, I fully expect that you have no idea where the amygdala is. But it has different areas and regions, and these regions have different functions. Anyway, it plays a crucial role in fear, emotion, and social behavior. Recently, a new study looked at neuron number across development in the amygdala of people with autism and compared them to those without autism. The first author, Dr. Thomas Avino, who is a postdoc with Dr. Schumann at UC Davis, explains why the amygdala is so important to study in autism. Studying the amygdala is important not only for autism, but for understanding other brain disorders as well, such as schizophrenia and anxiety disorder. However, we are interested specifically in the amygdala in autism because this brain region is involved in many complex social and emotional behaviors, and it is many of these same behaviors, things such as eye contact or face processing, that are at the core deficits of autism. The idea of amygdala dysfunction in autism is not new, and previous studies have demonstrated that both the function and structure of the amygdala is altered in autism relative to neurotypical individuals. Specifically, as we know from functional brain scans, the amygdala may become overactive in individuals with autism during facial or eye gaze processing tasks, which is interpreted to mean that these social stimuli are potentially anxiety-provoking or aversive for individuals with autism. From a structural standpoint, MRI studies have demonstrated early overgrowth of the amygdala in children with autism that tends to stabilize and may even decline into adulthood. However, the cellular and neurobiological factors that underlie this altered growth and function are not very well understood. Therefore, for our study, we were interested in examining the amygdala at the microscopic level to determine if any differences exist in the number or distribution of neurons between individuals with autism and neurotypical individuals. Now, lots of studies have looked at the amygdala function in autism. Dr. Vino mentioned just a few. It isn't by far the only area involved in autism. People with amygdala lesions or damage to their amygdala don't have an autism diagnosis necessarily. There used to be the idea that the amygdala, because it's part in the social and emotional brain, was key, and it is key, but we now know that the connections in and out of the amygdala are also just as important. It was actually thought to be key in the fear response, and it is, but again, people with amygdala lesions can still have a fear response, so the role of the amygdala in fear is probably a little bit more subtle. 
It may, however, explain fear to eyes or at least give people with autism who look at the eyes some measure of discomfort. In fact, the amygdala has been shown to be critically important to anxiety symptoms in people with autism. As Dr. Avino mentioned, there have been studies of the size of the amygdala across time using imaging techniques and even the function of the amygdala in people with autism. But there are things, just as he said, that need to be studied on a microscopic level. To do this, researchers need actual brain tissue. This is a topic that many people want to avoid, but really, there's just so much that can be done without this resource. And families with autism need to have all of the answers, not just half of the answers because they don't have enough research materials to use. They really need to know about cells, connections, and circuits of the brain that connect to each other. Dr. Ravino explains here. Brain tissue usage and donation is a hugely important topic, especially when studying autism. Studying the postmortem brain allows us to examine the brain at a resolution that is totally unavailable using other methods. For example, I was just describing MRI studies and how they can give us an idea about the volume or the general growth of the brain. However, these imaging methods are limited in their resolution and they cannot provide a detailed picture of what is going on at the microscopic level. Specifically, using brain tissue, we are able to image all of the cells of the brain, including neurons and their support cells, the glial cells, as well as their connections to one another, the synapses. Also, in the case of the amygdala, this structure is comprised of many more smaller regions of interest. For example, in the paper, we describe the lateral versus the basal or the paralaminar nuclei that are not so easily distinguished using MRI. Therefore, having the postmortem brains allows us to microscopically examine the neural structure in a region-specific way with the imaging capability that is otherwise unavailable. As we discuss in the paper, the region specificity of our findings is quite important and implicates neurodevelopmental processes and critical time windows of development. I think it is also important to highlight that a single brain donation can be used in a large number of studies. In this way, we are able to not only maximize the value of tissue donation, but from a scientific perspective, it allows us to examine many brain factors simultaneously and collaboratively with other researchers to give us a more comprehensive picture of the neurobiology of autism and other brain disorders. So Dr. Avino makes a great point. Each donation is used in multiple studies. One donation, in fact, has been used in 30 different studies. As you can guess, it took decades to collect all the brains that were used in this study, and it's the largest of the amygdala so far. It looks at more age ranges that have been studied before, allowing researchers to really examine the differences across time. And Dr. Avino again explains more here. This study is unique for a number of reasons. First, with a little more than 50 post-mortem brains, it is the largest stereological study of the human and autism amygdala to date. Given the scarcity and time intensivity of human post-mortem research, this was quite the feat and took years to complete. It allows us to more accurately make inferences about what is going on in the early stages of postnatal brain development and how it may be going wrong in autism 
and in other brain disorders. Another unique aspect of our study is that it is one of the first studies to quantitatively examine the neuronal maturation of the paralaminar nucleus. This recently discovered pool of immature neurons seems to be very important for the proper development of the amygdala, and it may be the structural basis for why we see such an extended growth period of the amygdala. Okay, so the study looked at different areas of the amygdala in different age donors, which means different times in development, as young as two years of age. So two things. Yes, this is an autism study. But second, looking at the amygdala in people without autism across time is just as important. As Dr. Avino mentioned, the amygdala is really important in other dis developmental disorders. But what did it find? So I keep talking about they looking at the amygdala in different time points in development, and they looked at cells. What were they looking at and what did they find? The main findings of our study were threefold. First, we were able to show that the number of neurons in the neurotypical human amygdala increases throughout life. Second, we demonstrated that this neuron number increase in the neurotypical amygdala is most likely due to the incorporation of immature neurons located within the paralaminar nucleus. Um, these two findings are hugely important because not only does it provide a microanatomical basis for the extended amygdala growth we observe using MRI, but it suggests that the human amygdala may continue to produce or retain immature neurons well beyond the perinatal period. This continual production or maturation of neurons may provide a type of structural plasticity for the amygdala as it continues to grow and shape well into adolescence and adulthood. Lastly, we found that the number of mature neurons is initially elevated in children with autism, but is drastically reduced by the time these individuals reach adulthood. One hypothesis that we discuss in the paper is that this reduction in neuron number may be a consequence of a hyperactive amygdala. For example, in other disorders such as depression, it has been suggested that hyperactivity of a brain region may actually be toxic for its brain cells, leading to neuron loss and volumetric decline. However, we discuss other implications in the paper, and more work will need to be done to fully understand the amygdala neuron loss we've observed in individuals with autism. Okay, that's all great, but in his own words, I asked Dr. Avino what this study meant for families with autism. I think the greatest impact this study has is a better understanding of the underlying biology and development of the human amygdala, especially as it relates to autism. As we know from previous studies, the amygdala is responsible for many social and emotional behaviors that have been implicated in autism. The amygdala also undergoes a very extended developmental period lasting much longer than other brain regions, which we've learned from MRI studies. Until now, the cellular processes that underlie this prolonged growth were not well understood. However, our study provides a new, detailed account of the lifelong cellular maturation that occurs in the human amygdala and likely underlies its protracted development. Furthermore, we show for the first time the altered development of the amygdala in autism at the neuronal level, converging on previous findings in this brain region. 
As I previously mentioned, examining the postmortem brain is the only way to obtain this type of biological data. Therefore, studies such as this one are hugely important for understanding the basic, typical neuronal development and maturation of the brain. From there, we are able to understand not only where in the brain there is altered development, but equally as important is when, during a critical period of development, did the trajectory get off course. Thank you, Dr. Avino. I also want to put in a plug for a special opportunity to ask Dr. Davino anything about the amygdala, anything about autism, or just anything at all in a short webinar, mostly a Q&A session to be held next Monday, April 9th at 1 p.m. EST. I'll put the webinar registration link at the end of the podcast summary. But you know, I couldn't leave this without having the last word. In typically developing people in all areas of the amygdala, there seem to be an increase in number of neurons across time from age two to around age 40. Now that's kind of unique for the brain. For it to happen over a long period of time, rather than a discrete developmental window, is unique for the amygdala, which means that even if the amygdala wasn't an important region in autism, this brain region would be important to study to look at different factors, both genetic and environmental, which affect brain development. So that's another story for another podcast, but for now, let's focus on autism. In autism, there are more neurons in childhood compared to those without. And then somewhere in adolescence, this takes a downturn so that later on in life, there are 20% fewer neurons. Instead of going up as would happen in the non-autism brain, the number of neurons goes down in adolescence and adulthood. Well, what's going on? The authors themselves have there are a number of theories. First, maybe hyperactivation of the amygdala from excess anxiety and fear just wears out normal developmental neuron number. This kind of makes sense because there are just too many neurons in childhood, so those extra neurons are causing too much mayhem. There seems to be too much activity, and then the cells start to either stop developing normally, stop being produced, or stop going to the right places. This is called excitotoxicity, and it's a real thing seen in other disorders, so there's no reason to rule this out in autism. More studies looking at neural markers of excitotoxicity will need to be done to actually determine if this is the case. If it is, in fact, excitotoxicity, therapeutic ways to stop it may be a treatment option. You don't want to shut down the amygdala early on in life, obviously, but you may want to turn it down so that later on there's less of a strain on the amygdala. It's hard to do, but it kind of should be explored. The authors also suggest that this whole process may be mediated by the immune system. In other words, the immune system may be the one causing the reduction in neuron number later in adolescence and adulthood. Again, more studies are needed. But together, this study explains on a cellular level why there are, why there are changes in the function of the amygdala in autism, why autism is so linked to anxiety, why some of these things may not emerge until adolescence and adulthood, and describes a process by which normal development of the brain may be altered. Thank you so much for listening this week. And please, you can hear about these and please consider registering for the Autism Brain Net by going to takesbrains.org forward slash sign up. You can hear all about studies like this on a regular basis through a quarterly newsletter that you'll get if you sign up. Talk to you soon.